desideratum is a Latin word, meaning things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates the art of telling and the journey of listening to stories with narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith, Friends. Episode 13, Joan. Today's featured story comes from Grace Salmon's women's fiction novel, The Eves. I want you to listen for why she struggled with her main character being called a liar. How she uses a nerdy explanation of mitochondrial DNA. And what the simple, painted handprint we have all seen and done means to her story. And so this idea of leaving your handprint, it sort of anchored the beginning and the end of Jessica's growth in this story. It does. And the handprints are important to me on multiple levels. And you're right, it starts very much in the beginning of the story. The first part of the story is when Jessica's very bossy friend, Sonia, takes her down to the farm to meet these old women. And part of what the women do is a harvest every year. And at the end of the harvest, where they have brought kids from Washington, D.C. down to the farm, they ask each of the kids to put their hands in paint and leave their mark on the wall of the barn. And that's a key message that each of us every day has that possibility to do that in small ways and big ways to make a positive impression and leave a lasting impression. So Sonia in the very beginning, you know, wags her hand at Jessica and says, I watched you today. You did not leave your mark on the world. You did not put your hand in the paint. This hiding from the world stops today. And you will write about those women. So let me interrupt quickly. Grace's story has a story writer in it. And like Grace, her character Jessica experiences self-discovery when she writes about others. So I wanted to capture the tension of that, how you're perceived and how you feel you are. And that's really a theme in multiple parts of the book. Jessica, the main character, she has a totally different image of herself, as many of us do, than other people view her. It's, I think it's a rare person who is comfortable enough in their skin to say, these are my strengths, and these are my weaknesses. But many of us don't have a good sense of who we are to others, you know, are we generous? Are we kind? Are we easy to talk to? Jessica at several points in the book talks about, oh, this person is immediately likable. Mm. And it's not till the very end of the book where someone says, Jessica, you are immediately likable. She's so disconnected from that. One of the things I loved about this book is how unpredictable I think it was through Jessica. And I thought that she is flawed. And yet I was really rooting for her and really liked her. And yet she's a liar. Typically that's pretty off-putting, you know, but you, you create, I think, a way of understanding from the reader's perspective, understanding Jessica. 
I really struggled with the idea of saying she was a liar. I struggled with that because my next door neighbor was one of my beta readers and beta readers are so important to how the entire story develops, Mm -hmm. but he had to stop. And he said, well, you know, she's a liar. And I was like, well, she's not really, she's just telling the story because she has a hard time, you know, getting through life and this makes her life palatable. And he goes, oh no, she's a liar. Mm -hmm. And that stopped him in the tracks and it stopped me. Uh, I think it makes it really engaging. There's no surprise to your listeners that she tells this enormous lie in order to get through life. And then there are three big plot twists and turns. And the ending is very, very unexpected for most people. And some people are great with that. And some people are still mad at me for that. (laughs) I can imagine that you've gotten some feedback about that. I have. Uh, Yeah. But I think... That's the beauty of not seeing things in black and white. Um, And also that we all invent ourselves. You know, we all have our own stories that we tell ourselves. And that's really what her lie is about. It's a coping mechanism. It's how she, it's the story she tells herself. And the other thing that's so great about it is that once you put something out there, it does then have a life of its own. And then she has to deal with that. But I yeah, like she, that. I think she's very I think she's very surprised that that comes back like she has to face her own lie. She's like right. I think Jessica is very much going, "Oh, whoa, I didn't know I was going to have to backtrack on that one." Yeah. And I think it's because she gets close to this group of diverse and determined and women and as she becomes more authentic with them, the need for the lie falls away. They they are understanding of what goes on, even if they're in judgment, because some of the people are very much in judgment of that lie. But I think that she's surprised that she has to let that lie go mm. in order to actually live a meaningful life. So you just mentioned the word stories and across the front of the book, it says, when our stories are told, everything changes. So it's really through Jessica doing the oral histories of the women that she gets immersed in understanding her life and their life. Yes. You can tell, right, how important it is to Grace that her characters are growing through their connections with each other. She even includes some science to really get the reader thinking about what we all have in common. That's the excerpt we chose to share today. Joan. On my way to meet Tobias, I try to frame my still unclear thinking. I want to appear clear-headed and purposeful when we meet. Sonia says they need help. Help doing what? I know I'm supposed to convince him to let me and Sonia intrude. But intrude to do what? To allow me to ask questions? Write about his land? Interview the women and write about them? Document their stories? It's not a very focused request. Maybe I should first try to build common ground with Tobias as a man of science. As a doctor... He would probably get my obsession with DNA. But it isn't exactly a conversation starter. My nerdy DNA thing, as Erica calls it, 
began in undergrad school when DNA really began to be understood. My particular interest began when they discovered that a part of each woman's DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, is passed from a mother to her offspring equally, male and female, sons and daughters. However, only the daughters carry that same DNA successfully into reproduction and the next generation. Her son's mitochondrial DNA does not make it through fertilization, and so her genetic footprint does not carry to her son's offspring. Meanwhile, her daughter carries her mitochondrial DNA to her daughters, and her granddaughters carry to their daughters in an unbroken chain. Most surprisingly, regardless of the size of our world or our diverse cultures, experiences, and preferences, Scientists have determined that there are only nine differences in this mitochondrial DNA across all of humankind. They can reach back to prehistory and can link us to our nine ancestral mothers. Nine. Just nine. Passed to us only by our mothers and carried forward only by our daughters. I can't help but believe our stories— like our genetic helix, are closely intertwined. There's even talk in the research of one day being able to identify a mitochondrial Eve by being able to trace the mitochondrial DNA back to the origin of humanity. It doesn't matter to me whether this happened by the hand of God or pure evolution. I love the idea of a mitochondrial Eve. What I wonder most about is who were those nine women? What are their stories? Why their DNA? Did they have any understanding of their uniqueness? I guess it is a nerdy DNA thing, as Erica tells me. But with such a small number, how closely related must we be, as women, to almost anyone we meet? Despite its awesomeness, I doubt DNA is the place to start with Tobias. History, then. I would love to learn more about the Grange and get a sense of place. And the aged women, they will have stories. I can ask for stories of the war, civil rights, and immigration of Ellis Island, and of a whole history of the women's movement, their breaking of glass ceilings, or their not caring to do so. I'd love their perspective on how America has changed. Maybe I can capture what they would want to leave behind for the next generation. Thinking of my own mother, maybe I could capture the conversations they wish they had had with their own mothers. Or those they would want to have with their children. This approach feels more comfortable. Throughout the hour or so drive, I retrace the ride down Route 4 and... Predictably, as D.C. falls behind me, I reconnect with the land. I've made the trip down to this part of Maryland so many times. Although greatly changed from even a few years ago, the shopping malls and housing developments haven't quite erased Maryland's rich history as a major tobacco grower. Tobacco growing, once the highest-paying cash crop per acre in colonial times, has virtually stopped here, after the big tobacco companies paid the farmers to stop growing it. Sad to me, the land is now mostly sold off to developers, 
making places like The Grange as unique as Sonia says it is. However, tobacco barns, drafty buildings that appear to be ready to collapse, still dot the increasingly hilly landscape as I drive south. At this time of year, the tobacco leaves have been harvested and will hang to dry for another month or so before they are ready. It's probably lost on most, but as I drive past the towns of Upper Marlborough and Lower Marlborough, I appreciate that this is the real Marlborough country and that the tobacco leaf is still at the center of the county flag. Driving south, the landscape rises. Off to my left, invisible from the roadway, I know there are the cliffs that tower over the sparkling Chesapeake Bay. I used to bring Rin and Adam when they were little to collect shark's teeth and chase sand crabs. We'd come this way to explore the nuclear power plant and a wonder at its hydroponic gardens. There's a road sign suggesting, Visit Historic St. Mary's. It's just a bit further south. This was the bus route for the mandatory fourth-grade school trip to learn about Maryland state history. The trips, the bus rides, the chaperoning. Those were very good days. I find myself recalling the docent's speech about George Calvert, the first Lord Baltimore. Escaping England's persecution for his Catholic faith, he came here to a settlement he called St. Mary's, and claiming the land as Mary's land. Maryland. It was 1631. Fast forward 250 years. Make friends with Indians. Displace Indians. Establish a colony. Grow tobacco. Fight a revolutionary war. Establish slavery. Fight a civil war. Abolish slavery. Give Tobias and Dolores Thatcher land. Fast forward 140-some-odd years and four generations. We've arrived at today. As I near Martinsburg and the small bend in the road, I'm still not clear on an approach. Just north of the power plant, the road sways gently east before swinging west and continuing south to the end of the peninsula. There was a small town here. Now, however... The only landmark for what was the center of Martinsburg is the small market across from the turn to the Grange. Glancing over at the market, I make the left onto Tobias's road and property. I drive up the gravel path, past the field we just harvested, and think of it as gently resting for the winter. Coming to the house, I decide to wait a minute before exiting the car. Deep breath. One step. I hear Sonia's oft-spoken words. Things either work out or they make a good story. Okay then, here we go. But this concept that all women are some all humanity is connected through just nine variations in our DNA points to me that we are really more alike than disparate. Yes. And if we bother to listen, I think we'll find that. And that's what I would hope. You know, people frequently ask me, why did I write this book? And there are multiple reasons. I think the message I want is that people realize that we are more 
alike than not. Mm -hmm. And if we take the time to listen, we will understand each other more than not. Yeah, I love that. And we certainly all make mistakes. You know, Jessica has made hundreds of mistakes. So we're all real. That's there's this sense that we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be real. So I like to ask authors what they think is essential. And you can answer that as an author or as a mom or as a person or for where you are in this chapter in your life. What for you, what is essential? Oh, such an important question. What is essential? Is it too trite to say be understanding? Is it too trite to say love first? Start with love. Start with understanding. Yeah. I think everything can well from that, right? And really that is your, that's a lot of your message in the eaves is to be understanding, to really see people, you know, is a, is a key component, I think, in what you're writing about. And including yourself. There's nobody harder on herself than Jessica. Yeah. And I think we are, women are particularly very, very hard on themselves. It's hard sometimes to quiet the voice that tells you you can't or it's not good enough. You shouldn't try to give yourself that grace first and to be real with yourself. It's a really good essential message, actually. I love that. So I would say, you know, without being an egotist, love yourself first. Be understanding of yourself first. Yeah. Grace says that self-love and understanding for her have been a gift of age. In her book, she has envisioned the women she would like to be like at age 80 and 90 and beyond. Because, as her characters like to say, she is not done. I'll put a link to Grace Salmon's website in the show notes and on the Desideratum website. Thanks for listening.